0: So good morning, thank you for being here today. It's good to see your smiling faces on, an, on a beautiful summer day. We are talking this morning about religion and spirituality. I mentioned before, I'm Jared Kirk. And uh, we're trying to address the topics in church that I think ordinary Bostonians think about that they wonder about. I think about my neighbors that I love so much on Thwing Street, and I, I just think, like, what would they want to hear about? What would actually be interesting to them? And so that's this teaching series that we're doing throughout the summer. Every topic is different. So if you're not here one week and you got to go on vacation, because everybody, you know, usually travels during the summer here and there, then you can miss a week and you're not going to be lost because every, every week stands alone. Okay, so let's get into it today. You're going to need your teaching notes in just a minute, so pull those out. We'll get to those when we get there. Uh, One of the unspoken questions of our society, I think it's kind of on people's minds, is why on earth should I attend a religious service? Why? Why should I go? Going to church today feels a lot like taking a train to L.A. Sure, you could do it. And your, grandpa- your grandparents were probably really into it. They probably thought it was amazing. But for you, why would you take a train unless you were really into nostalgia or you really wanted to meet other train enthusiasts? Is that what they're called? They probably have a cute name for themselves. Trainiacs. Like, why would you? It just doesn't make sense. Why would you, why would you do that? So in our society, most people have become something that they would refer to. Maybe, maybe you would say it out loud. Maybe, maybe it's just a label, but you wouldn't call yourself this, which is spiritual but not religious. Because America, as an American society, like that's where we're located here, is, is that um, it used to be an incredibly religious place, and now it is increasingly less and less religious. The number in Boston right now is 40%. 40% of people who live in Boston identify as... N- no religious preference when they check out, when they check a box on a census form. So you you might say, well, I'm Catholic, I'm Protestant, I'm Jewish, I'm Islam. 40% of the people check the box that says none. They're called nuns, which is ironic because they're like the exact opposite of nuns. So people are becoming less and less religious, but people are still incredibly spiritual. When you look at the, the Barna polling data, people believe in God at the exact same rates they did 30 years ago. They're spiritual, but they're not religious. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're kind of like that, and you don't even know why you're here today. You know, when you're, you're a, you had a friend who invited you to come, and they were like, oh, you gotta come to my church, the music's really good. They project the, the lyrics on the screens. And occasionally, the pastor's attempts at humor are funny, and, and, and you, know, all, you know, your friend invited you, and all you heard was, man, you're going to love the dining car on this train. And this train has Wi-Fi. And you're like, dude, I just, I don't, I don't get it. I'll go meet your train enthusiast friends, but, like, I, that, that's not my jam. But maybe for you, or maybe out of a sense of nostalgia, I'll go and check it out. So maybe that's you this morning, and hopefully, hopefully this, this, this message connects with where you are. Or maybe uh, you used to you, you used to consider yourself that, and somewhere along the way you started becoming an, an attender. Maybe somewhere you even became a member. Or chances are your roommate or your uh, your family members are spiritual, but not religious. Okay. I think that both being, being religious and being spiritual are inadequate ways of connecting to God and moving through the world. I think there's something better than both of those things. And that's what I want to present to you this morning for your consideration. Now the idea that there's something better than religion out there has a long history. So this is where you pull out your teaching notes and the first quote is not Jesus, but Nietzsche. And he says this, Moralities and religions are the principal means by which one can make whatever one wishes out of man, provided one possesses a superfluity of creative forces and can assert one's will over long periods of time in the form of legislation, religions, and customs. He wrote that in The Will to Power. So the, the problems of religion, one of, the, one of the core problems is that it can be abused by people in order to facilitate their will to power. No one's ever used their religious position for their own personal gain before, have they? There's a guy right now that, that people call the Lamborghini pastor, I've been trying to shake that title for months now, but it's stuck. They call me the Honda Pilot pastor. No one calls me anything, actually. It's sad. Um, So, Nietzsche has this critique of religion, but let's look. Here's Jesus. Matthew 23, 23 through 24. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. In the gospel narratives, the way that they work are the Pharisees are the actual embodiment of religious observance without the heart that's supposed to match the religious observance. And therefore, when Jesus critiques the Pharisees, in these narratives, he's critiquing religion. Okay, so he says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. And so we have this critique of religion from Jesus. We're saying that one of the things that, that, that can happen when people follow and practice religion is that they become uh, obsessed with following the code. And then they become so obsessed with nailing every little stipulation, every, every part of the law, the testimony, the code. And then they forget the big important things like love God and love your neighbors and show compassion to the least of these. That it's a, it's a fundamental um, um, problem that religion can create. Okay? So that's Jesus Here's the third um, quote I pulled on a critique of religion, because most of what Jesus said has its roots in the Old Testament prophets, it's, it's there already. We find the prophet Isaiah in the, in the Jewish scriptures. And so the Lord says, these people say they are mine, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. In other words, Isaiah's critique is that religion can make you a hypocrite. Now think about that, you, when Nietzsche and Jesus and Isaiah agree on anything, it has to be true, right? Isaiah and Jesus, the, 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 the distance between them, the chronological distance between them was about the distance between Columbus and you. And then you have, again, a couple thousand years before Nietzsche, and they all agree that religion has its problems, the critique of religion is well established, and It can cause you to become, you can use it to abuse power, but you can also use it to become a hypocrite accidentally. So one of the core problems of religion, you may want to write this in your notes, it's not in there, is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. That's the real killer of religion. Because if there's a code and a list of rules, you can easily become self-righteous because you measure up and they don't. And so no wonder people often give up on religion if it has a tendency to make you self-righteous. The replacement for that in our society has been a spirituality. Um, And while it's been much less explored and much less critiqued, I think there are some fundamental drawbacks to spirituality as well. If religion is about the external rules and codes, the doctrines and dogmas and conforming your life to those, spirituality, particularly in American society, has become something along the lines of look deep, deep down inside yourself and being true to who you are. You look deep down inside of yourself to discover the truth and then you live your truth You ever heard that? Or you speak your truth. Now, here's a a good question. Where did those things deep, deep down inside you come from? Here's a possibility. There are values from your family and your society that you have internalized so deeply you can no longer distinguish which of them are from your culture and which of them are you as a person. That's a scary thought. Essentially, spirituality is a, um, a deification of the individual. You are your own god, right? There's no there's no external god who sends the commandments down on the mountain, and then you have to conform your life to that, right? You look deep down inside yourself, and you can even see this in the language that we use when someone says "Speak your truth." You know, I don't know I don't know exactly when this happened, but we're human beings, and we used to have perspectives. So I have a perspective on the situation. You have a perspective on the situation. We all have perspectives. Because we are mortal, because we have a limited view of the world, all we can share is our perspective. However, it's, it's, perspectives are from people. The truth comes from the gods. And so speaking your truth is just a linguistic clue that we have made gods out of people in our society. If you are your own god... <laughs> Here's what i said this was this is harsh um who can confront you who can correct you who can tell you when you are being foolish or stupid or wrong or evil and this was the harsh part i said you've been all of those things haven't you because we all have that that's part and parcel of being human so here's kind of the core issue with spirituality. If the problem with religion is it makes you self-righteous, the problem with spirituality is that it makes you self-justifying. Because the, the human capacity for justification for our actions is literally limitless. If you could harness it as energy, we would never be hungry again. You know, it's, it's, just, it's limitless, the human being's ability for self-justification. So both religion and spirituality are inadequate ways of connecting with God. So I had you write the word self-righteousness down for religion. I want you to write the word self-justifying down for spirituality. And both religion and spirituality contain the same fatal flaw within them, and that is pride. Pride. And pride is the enemy of human growth and human improvement and human potential. Because if you think you've arrived, you stop growing, whereas if you have humility in your life, you continue to grow and change and thrive and develop. So I said I was going to at least attempt to propose a better way. What is it? Well, um, we're going to look at the interaction this morning between Jesus and a woman. It's in John chapter 4. It's on the inside of your teaching notes if you're following along on these, or you can open up a Bible to John chapter 4. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus offers a different way than either religion or spirituality, as he has an encounter with a woman who I think can very easily be labeled as spiritual but not religious. Jesus and this woman run into each other at a well. They start talking about actual water, get kind of metaphorical and spiritual pretty quick. So let's jump in on the conversation in verse 13. Jesus replies, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. So when Jesus is talking about um, water flowing within a person, he's essentially talking about the desires of the soul. There are things that you, your soul wants that are so real to you it, that it's just like being thirsty and not having water. Um, it, this wasn't in my notes, but you, you may remember from like high school you know, science class or psychology, there was Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you, in theory you don't meet the higher level needs until the lower level needs are met. And, and if you stop and pause and think about it for like 30 seconds, you think, well that's total crap. Because people will literally starve themselves for love. They will die for love. They will sacrifice themselves for love, much less making sure that their food and water needs are met. And so it just just doesn't work. There are are hungers and thirsts in your internal life, in your soul, that are unbelievably real to you, like love. And Jesus says that um, he is offering himself as someone who can satisfy the deepest desires of your soul, and they're using the metaphor of water to talk about it. So then the woman replies, verse 15, please, sir, the woman says, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I, won't ha- and I won't have to come here to get water. Jesus says, go and get your husband. Verse 17, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. And I think what you see here is some of the self-justifying nature of spirituality. When you've been married five times, there, just, there has to be some self-justifying behavior happening, right? That's just, that, that's going on. The woman at this point is going to change the subject. And I want you, look at what she does here in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Now, Jesus brings up her five husbands and she starts talking about religion. And there's a life lesson in here. If you're at Thanksgiving dinner, the only appropriate time to bring up politics or religion is when your family starts asking you about your fifth husband. You're just, just just go with religion at that point. She brings up religion in order to change the subject to redirect it around her inner life. And she, she challenges him on this religious thing because she's expecting Jesus to drop back into an old religious argument here. You know, she says, like, where should people really worship on this mountain or that mountain? In contemporary church, church culture, it would be sort of like redirecting the conversation by saying, like, um, do you believe in f- uh, human free will or the sovereignty of God? Or just, like, kind of blurting out, like, so should you baptize babies or adults? and she just wants to get into a religious controversy controversy to point things away from her she wants to get back into a religious conversation because jesus is acting a lot like a jewish rabbi so she expects him to kind of revert back to religion but jesus replies believe me dear woman the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the father on this mountain or in jerusalem well now that's surprising that's certainly surprising because if you ask any good Jewish rabbi where you should worship, the answer's you know, still Jerusalem, right? It's there's certainly an internal aspect to it, but she, she definitely expected him to say, You should go to Jerusalem, but he refuses to play that game. He says in verse twenty two, You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So fascinating, he you know, Jesus here is, is, is referencing the part that religion actually gets right, the positive part, which is that there's an external truth that can be learned and understood and known. You know, he says, you, you know very little about the one you worship while we know all about him. In other words, there's this external reality called God that you can know and understand, That's what the Jews have. But he also reinforces that God is spirit, so you can follow the code to the letter, you can follow the the law to the letter, but still not be worshiping him correctly. So there are elements of both spirituality and religion which are correct, but they're still insufficient, because the story ends like this. The woman says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. So to a woman who is spiritual but not religious, Jesus does not offer the religious option. The religious option would be repent from your sins, go to Jerusalem, offer your sacrifices, receive your blessing from God, go on your way. Sin no more. He also refuses a spiritual option, which is because he says, you know, you Samaritans don't really understand the one that you're worshiping. Instead of either spirituality or religion, Jesus does something absolutely incredible, which is he offers himself as the solution to the woman's deepest needs. He says he is the one who satisfies the deepest longings of the human soul. That's crazy. I mean, he was either completely psychotic you say like you come in for a counseling appointment. You you know you schedule it with a psychiatrist because you know you're having some trouble in your relationship at home. And you know you go you go you know I I I, I you so you so you sit down and I say how can you help you say I'm having trouble with my wife. So the psychologist says okay well tell me what's going on. You say, I just don't feel loved at all. I just don't I feel like my wife doesn't love me. I just I don't know what the problem is. I my, my my I just feel like in internally I have this longing this hunger for love. If your psychologist looked at you and said well let me let me tell you what you need to do you need to come to me, okay? He would be or she would be disbarred immediately. Like, that's like the one thing you can't do. You say, like, this person's a psychopath. This person's a nut job, okay? Jesus is offering this claim of, I will satisfy the deepest longings of the human soul, and I think that's totally crazy, unless he actually rose from the dead. Like, and if the guy rises from the dead, then he gets to say whatever he wants to say, because he rose from the dead, and that's the core claim of Christianity. And if you're here today, and you're kind of investigating Christianity, and you think like, well, this guy's off his rocker, like, listen, I just want to shoot straight with you. Like, there's this unmistakably uh, miraculous part of Christianity that we believe that this man rose to death, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, so he can satisfy the human soul, that God offers us a person, because it's that personhood of Jesus that's so unique, Christianity has sometimes been called the unreligion. It's something just totally different. It doesn't offer a code of rules. It doesn't even offer a set of doctrines, not exactly. But it also doesn't replace religion with an internal enlightenment. It offers a person. You know, I kind of liken it to this. When people start figuring out what Christianity is about, say you're, in, um, say you're, say you're jogging down the street and you hear hooves behind you. And again, like I say this all the time, it's Boston, so theoretically, yeah, it might happen. You never know. And you hear hooves behind you, and you think, man, there's definitely a horse behind me. It's coming. I can feel it. I can hear it. I know there's a horse behind me. And you turn around, you look, and it's a zebra. And you think, wow, I did not expect that. That's how Christianity is so often. People come, and they start to hear about Jesus, and they, they hear about the Christian message, and they think, well, like, this is a religion. This is like all the religions, right? And it's like, it's like, you know, you keep thinking horse, 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 and then when you actually encounter it, you're like, that's a zebra. Like, that is not what I was thinking. That is something different. Like, I thought it was like, you know, God looks at who are the good people and who are the bad people, and the good people go to heaven when they die, and the bad people are like, oh, we're going to talk about that next Sunday. You know, that's not what it is at all. And so you keep thinking like, horse, 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 and it's a zebra, you keep thinking like, this must be a religion, and it's just something weird, it's just something different, it's not quite that, it's a person. That's just what the Christian message is. Later in the book of John, um, the, the, who is the writer of the, the gospel that we're looking at, he gets even more explicit about the fact that Christianity offers you a person. John fourteen six, which is also our memory verse for today. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus, again, offers himself. And so if you look at the next page on your teaching notes, it says why Christianity gives us a person to follow. Why, it's really why God gives us a person to follow. And there's three reasons that God gives us a person to follow rather than a religion or an internal enlightenment of spirituality. And here's the first thing write this down. He gives us his life as the way. His life as the way. Jesus says he is the way. In other words, you have his life as a model, as the, the model human life. John 13, 15 says, I have given you an example to follow, do as I have done to you. That's Jesus talking. I've given you an example to follow, do as I have done to you. So instead of an external code to follow, a list of rules, you have a perfect life. And that standard is way higher. That is way higher. There's actually a there's actually, um more variation and freedom in a list of don'ts than in a command to do. And and kind of here's how that works. If the command of the law is do not commit adultery, well maybe you can actually maybe you could do that. Like maybe you could achieve that goal. But what if instead of the command being do not commit adultery, the command is live like Jesus with perfect purity? Oh man, that's a problem. You know, it, it's such a higher standard. And one of the things that does is it destroys the self-righteousness that religion normally creates. Right? So if one of the problems of religion is self-righteousness, you have, the, you have following Jesus and you just, you have the, you're, you're modeling your life on, on the way of the perfect person, the, the ultimate human being. And therefore, you know, this is one of those things that Christians are always doing. It's, it's, it's just inherent in the Christian life. It's like you, you, you look at your life, you measure it against Jesus. You look at your life, you measure it against Jesus. You look at your life, you measure it against Jesus. And so if you're, if you're doing that consistently, you don't have room for self-righteousness. All you ever get is humility because you're measuring yourself against the perfect person. There's actually some branches of Christianity that teach that you can just become holy, that you can make it, and I think that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I just, I, you're, just, you're just like not paying attention to what it's like to be a human being, right? Because inherent in the Christian life is comparing yourself to the perfect person. He gives you a way to follow. It's not a list of rules. It's a way. Now, that also means, and I think this is really cool, that you, know, you could kind of stay safely at home on the farm, if you're Dorothy in this metaphor, anyway, you could stay safely at home and just follow all the rules and be, you know, you're, you're kind of doing a good job, like nailing it, killing it, following all the rules. In fact, the less you do, maybe the more likely you are to follow all the rules. But Jesus doesn't just give you a list of rules. He gives you a way to live life. And the way that Jesus lived is that he, he confronted the ultimate cause of suffering and evil in this world. Like, that was the mission of Jesus' life. And so, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, you see this confrontation with Satan, who's the embodiment of suffering and evil in this world. And then right before he goes to the cross, he encounters Satan again, which is like, uh, you know, it's like, what is the ultimate cause of, of suffering and evil in this world? And Jesus goes straight for it and takes it on, no matter what it costs. Okay, so... That's not something you find in a code of rules. That is a way of living. And if you are going to follow the way of Jesus, which is God giving us a person instead of just a religion or internal spirituality, you have to be engaged in the exact same fight that Jesus was engaged in. Your life has to be about seeking out the causes of suffering and evil in this world and taking them on, even if that causes suffering and sacrifice in your life. That's a way. That's a way, and it's different than a morality, it's different than an ethic, it's different than a system, it's certainly different than looking deep down inside for your spiritual illumination. It's the way of Jesus. And to follow him is to go on the greatest adventure that any human being can ever participate in, which is to confront suffering and evil in this world and to sacrifice as much as necessary to set things right. And then when you think about it, too, this just is how human beings learn how to live. We have rules in my house. We have three big ones. You have to be respectful, responsible, and fun to be with. And you can ask Amelia. She's already got them down. But just telling kids rules does not teach them how to live life. You know what my kids will end up becoming? Who I am. That's how you learn to become something. And that's what God gives us. He gives us a person just the way you learned from your parents. Okay, so God has given us a person because his life is the way. The second thing is his teaching as the truth. Jesus lived and taught over the course of three years. The truth he taught was not simply facts, but it was also a way of living in the world, a way of seeing things, a way of relating to God. John 8, 31 and 32 says it this way. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now I've been thinking about that, that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free and I don't think I understand it yet. But I, I know that there's a piece of that that I understand which is this. In Alcoholics Anonymous, the very first step is something like admit that I have a problem and that I'm powerless to overcome it. On my own. It's something like that. And so it's like, how do you get free from an addiction? Like, the very first thing you have to do is you have to speak the truth about your own life. Like, that is the pathway to freedom. That's at least, that's at least part of what Jesus means there. Although I don't think I totally understand it yet. But it's also... True here, not only that the truth sets you free, but that there is a truth outside of you that is there to be discovered in his teachings. You see, um, the religious person has his doctrines or her doctrines. He has no sense of mystery because he thinks he knows the truth and can contain it in his propositions. The religious person is self righteous because he thinks he contains the truth. Meanwhile, God offers us Jesus as the truth. If you're a spiritual person, you look deep down inside for your truth rather than for your perspective. Meanwhile, God has given us a person who teaches a truth external to what we know. And that's a very good thing. It's a good thing because if you're looking deep down inside of yourself to find the truth, you know, what you're just as likely to find when you look deep down inside of yourself Hidden motives, evil desires, you might discover some resentment and bitterness, mysterious and warring impulses of which you are unaware, secret guilt or shame which you project onto other people. That's what a normal, healthy person finds when they dig deep down inside of themselves. When you dig deep down inside of yourself, you're just as likely to find dirt as illumination. And so it is a dangerous proposition to go there seeking the ultimate truth by which to live your life. But God gives us a person. The religious person thinks they have the truth. The spiritual person thinks they have the truth. But God gave us the truth in the form of a person. That would, that would humble you. So you wouldn't have that self-righteousness of the religious person. That would um, make uncovering the truth exciting and adventure as you come to Jesus to find it. And learning the truth would be a lot more like learning another person. You know, I've been married to my wife 13 years, and um, I know a lot about her, but every once in a while, I still just learn something that I'm like, I had no idea. Just totally surprised me out of left field. I just did not know that about her. And when you follow Jesus, that's something of what it's like to learn the truth. All right, so God has given us a person. We saw the first two things. We saw his life as the way, his teaching as the truth. Here's the third, third thing. His death as the life. The most incredible and miraculous thing that God has given us is that he's given us a person to know and follow instead of a religious system or an internal enlightenment. He gave us Jesus. Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and then he rose from the dead. So let's, let's think about that for a second. That's said so often by Christians. You know, Christians just kind of say that, like, well, obviously, Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. But if you don't come to church very often, you're like, could we pause there for a second? Like, what is happening there? Okay. Um. So Jesus is the ultimate human being. He's the perfect human being. We, we believe he's fully God and fully man. So he's this perfect archetypal human being. And his life consisted of both teachings and miracles, but also that confrontation with ultimate evil. And that confrontation with ultimate evil cost him the ultimate sacrifice. It cost him his life, a death on the cross. It made me think this week of, um, some of you saw the movie 300, or some of you are just classical Greek scholars and so you know the, the Persian army was coming against the Greeks at Thermopylae and there's the 300 Greek soldiers that are guarding the advance. And they, they, it's not like some glorious victory. I mean, they all die. But they're willing to stand and fight so that the people living behind them can live in peace. They're willing to confront the ultimate evil, pay the ultimate sacrifice so that others can live. And they can live in peace. And that's something of what Jesus does. That's something of what Jesus does. Think about this. If you are going to take a stand against the causes of evil and suffering in this world, it could cost you your life. Think about historical figures just for a second that it cost them their life to stand against evil and suffering. Do you have any lack of examples? This is exactly what happened with Jesus. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus dies on the cross. He takes the sins of the world onto himself. What does that even mean? To take the sins of the world onto yourself. It means something like, in every human being, from the worst thing you've ever done, to the unredeemed corner of your heart that is still black, to the resentment and and bitterness that still festers in your inner world. Jesus took all of that onto himself publicly and allowed himself to be treated as though he were you. Um, There's a... um, There's a Holocaust memorial in uh, D.C., and it has, has the words on it, it's like, um, uh, never forget. So I was like, well, what aren't you supposed to get? What are, you, what are you supposed to remember? What aren't you supposed to forget? What you, you're supposed to remember um, that six million people died? That's not it. Um, you're supposed to remember that human beings are, are incredibly fragile and susceptible to totalitarianism. It's like, no, that's not it. What you're supposed to remember is, that's what people can do. And you're one of them. And if you haven't wrestled with that, then you will not, then of course you won't understand why the cross was the logical conclusion of Jesus taking our sins onto himself. And yet, when he bears our sins in his body on the cross, he takes the consequences that we should have so we receive the life. We we get to live and we get to live in peace with God because he takes the consequences. You know, if you have a religion, a religion can explain your sins, it can name your sins, but it can't atone for your sins. You can hope that you're atoned for, you can plead and beg that you're atoned for, but you can't know. If you're a spiritual person, you know, spirituality has no way to atone for the evil that you find inside of yourself. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, and he was raised to life. And in his life, you can find life. And that's what it means that God gave a person Jesus Christ.